This is the Apple Connect Podcast. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our fourth episode. Today, we'll be talking about continuous integration and continuous delivery. And uh, we can jump right in. Um, I know, Rebecca, you have some experiences with both Circle CI and GitHub Actions. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, for sure. Let's start with explaining what continuous integration and continuous delivery actually mean, because I feel like they're so widely used terms and not everybody maybe knows what this actually means. I think they can mean a lot of things, actually. I feel like everybody has a different definition, but uh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell our listeners what's, what we think when we mean continuous integration and continuous delivery. So continuous integration is basically automating the building and testing of the code that is committed, and it helps pushing and pulling, and pulling and th therefore means like rebasing or merging code on a regular basis. So everybody that's working on a project or on the same code base has the same code basically or works with the same code and it also helps to establish a certain minimum standard of code quality for example because you can automate the tests uh, that are run every time you commit something or that in our case swiftland is run every time you commit something so those kind of things i would add to continuous integration do you have something to add to that Yeah, I think the very basic definition is anything that is run on an automated schedule, right? So either it can be based on a time or it can be based on a trigger. So I think when we talk about continuous integration, as you mentioned, right, like SwiftLint is a good example where we, you know, run something every time a pull request is opened or we run something every time somebody pushes to a certain branch. Um, we have a whole bunch of pipelines that do other things, either triggered manually or they're triggered by another pipeline, for example. And then for continuous delivery, I think this is something that is much more prevalent in the in the web community because they continuously push to their to their master build or to their you know production uh, site. Whereas we as mobile developers, uh, especially with the Apple process, it, it might take a while before we actually can launch a new update, right? But this continuous delivery is, is helping us with that because uh, probably in, in larger teams or if you're working with more people, like there's a little bit more involved, right? Maybe you have, I don't know, screenshots update. Maybe you have uh, some provisioning profiles that are not really standard. Oftentimes this is handled by, by a machine so that no single developer has to run it on their own environment, which can always get a little bit hairy. So we, for example, we rotate our release managers uh, or release coordinators uh, in within our engineering team. So if, if everybody would have to do that from their own machine, then there would be a lot of issues because environments are not the same across everybody's, you know, it depends on what you've, what you've checked out and um, what you use. I, I know I think even my machines, if you have homebrew installed, there's so much stuff that you tried out and then it's just laying around or something changed and uh, it breaks over time. So this is kind of like my definition. Do you have anything to add? I agree with everything you said so far. And I would add that providing test uh, releases is also something that I would count under continuous delivery. You could, for example, every night build the, your latest master and uh, provide a test flight beta for that to maybe let your designers or your whomever who wants to test the app um, just have the latest version um, available every day. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, we do that through an enterprise certificate, actually. So we have a internal version of the app that all, all staff members or all people that are uh, signed up for it internally can can download. And I think right now we're using Firebase distribution for it. But that's exactly what you would say, right? Like we have a we have a server that does that every night, and that is part of our continuous delivery process, so that. QA can use those builds to test features and to test uh, regression and stuff like that. But we'll get to that a little bit later as well. So I want to I want to dive in now that you we've established the definition of um, how how you've used the you know different environments, different providers that are out there, and maybe have some like tips and tricks to share. Uh, yeah, for sure. I've used or am using CircuitCI at my current client, and I have used GitHub Action at my previous client. They are very similar, but let me start with maybe explaining what CircleCI does or how this is basically done. So what we usually have is, we or most people use Fastlane, right? Which is not a CI/CD tool, but um, it helps handling the complexities that come with the build and signing process. And most CI/CD tools have a Fastlane integration, which is quite neat. And the common setup is that you define your f- fast lane lanes in your fast file, like the running the tests or yeah, building a release or something like that. So it's kind of not uh, like I don't want to go into too much detail here. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes around fast lane and how to set that up. Um, it's a really cool tool, yeah. but yeah, j- just for now, there, there's lanes that you can set up that we can use. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm starting here with with Fastlane because I feel like many people either only build apps on their own, so they usually don't use Fastlane or some kind of continuous integration tool, or they start at a company and then everything's already set up there. So as long as you don't touch the pipeline at one point, you just use it and you don't really understand or don't really question how everything works together so i i started like a little bit earlier in the process so you have your fast file and then for example you use circle ci as your continuous uh, integration platform and circle ci is cloud-based so you don't have to host anything um, you just basically set it up on circle ci and you in our case you would use like mac os um, to to run everything on which uh, usually is more expensive. That's probably a disclaimer for everybody who uh, hasn't used that uh, before. Um, for every provider, macOS is more expensive. But anyway, so in Turkey, CI, you use also a YAML file that you, I don't know, you can call it like config YAML or Circle CI YAML, whatever. And there you define things like the operating system or the platform that you're workflow should be run on and then you have that concept that is actually um, the same for github actions uh, so i'm not sure how that is on travis so you can you can uh, explain that later so on circuit you would define workflows and every workflow has a specific set of jobs and a job contains certain steps so it's like that little hierarchy and the step is basically just one command that is executed. And one of those commands is when you use Fastlane, most often like a lane in Fastlane that you want to execute. And one of those commands could be like bundle exec Fastlane and then 
you have uh, the name of the lane, basically, and then this is run in the step. And then you can have different workflows, for example, what jobs you want to be executed in on every commit, for example, that would be all set up in different workflows. Or if you have nightly bills, like we just talked about, when you want to provide the latest version of your master as a test flight release, um, then you can like set up a workflow and then you build the, the, the latest master and provide it to test flight like every night at 12 o'clock or something. So that's uh, the basic thing. And I think Circle CI is kind of uh, nice. You can um, basically run multiple jobs in parallel to decrease the time the whole pipeline is running, which not only means that it's cheaper for you, but also your colleagues will thank you if you optimize the pipeline to uh, to the maximum because then just runs faster and it, you can just like, see if it fails or not. Yeah, I think that's, that's always the first optimization with any job is to make sure that it's run in a reasonable time. I know we, we did a lot of work around getting our UI tests to good to a reasonable time. If we run all of them on a clean build, it takes like an hour. So nobody wants to wait that long, right? So on our pull request, we actually, we only execute a subset of the tests that are actually related to the changes. We use like a keyword um, lookup sort of thing for, for test suits. And um, we also have parallel testing, I believe. And with that, we normally are looking more at like, 15 to 20 minutes for like running them on a pull request, which sometimes means you don't catch everything, but when something fails and you have to rebuild, which we'll get into a bit, but it's definitely faster. Like it's basically cutting down it in, in one third. And as you mentioned, you know, parallel parallel builds or parallel execution is a, is a good way to optimize this as well. And that's something you have to think about because oftentimes you will run these over and over and over <laughs> until something, something fails or something changes or something works, right? Yeah, I think especially when you also include Swiftland in the last project, we had very strict Swiftland rules and most of the time they failed <laughs> when you committed something. And I mean, let's be honest, the number of people who run the test locally or sw uh, run Swiftland locally compared to the ones who just commit or push everything and just wait for the pipeline to tell them if something <laughs> went wrong is quite low. Yeah, at this point, I want to interject because uh, uh, I agree with you. So we have it set up that our SwiftLint locally will run on the files that are modified, but it only gives you warnings. So your build will not actually fail as a result of that. And Oftentimes, you know, you edit multiple files, so you you don't always catch these warnings. And I've now set up a pre-commit hook. So that means SwiftLint is always running before I commit. It takes a little bit longer that way, but I'm not really waiting much. Like, I feel like committing is, is not a, um, a task that I'm, like, waiting for a lot. Building is much, much uh, more frequent, right? So that means I, I will never actually commit any, any linter errors now. Um, some of my colleagues, they have set up pre push hooks which means that they can still commit locally and then before they push they have to fix everything so at least then they know that it will pass um, but we also have this you know running with with our jenkins instance um, and it will it will not allow you to merge any swiftland errors um, which is a good thing i really like this this pre-commit hook um, sort of thing because then i can fix it right then and there with pre-push um, you may still have to rebase or you have to like you know 
make an make an edit, um, commit, or like you know fix it later because it you know depending on how your workflow looks like. But yeah, it's it's a good thing you you bring that up because uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a pain. Luckily, we have it separated. So I think you mentioned that it's all like one big pipeline. Um, for us, we have a like separate job for it, so that's the first one to finish oftentimes, so you don't have to wait for anything else, and you can see, okay, Swiftlint error, I'll fix that real quick. Yeah, and like, let's be honest, having to commit and push like a fixing commit like for, for Swiftlint or for a test, is, it's just embarrassing. I think you told me this, right? You have to prefix it with shame or something. <laughs> one of my colleagues... <laughs> One of my colleagues actually suggested that to, to we because we use um, conventional commits, uh, which means that you kind of have like prefixes for your commit messages, and those you can use to create change logs uh, automatically, basically. Um, and then you can decide which kind of prefixes you want to include in your change log. And then, for example, if you have like a feature prefix, every commit message that is prefixed with feature is listed in your change log. So we joked about adding like a prefix for shame and then you have to use the, the shame prefix for every avoidable commit. But I was wondering, why don't you have like a general pre-commit hook for those kind of things? Why has everybody uh, their own solution? Um, I think it's just a matter of that those aren't checked in. Maybe we should. <laughs> But it's it's always hard in a in a big team. There's a lot of opinions, and I feel like sometimes it's good to force things on people with lenters. But on the other hand, like I feel like people are <laughs> people want to sometimes skip this, and they can, right? You, you can you can still push um, when you say no verify, it will not run those hooks. Something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you probably squash and merge. That's another sore topic. <laughs> Or is that like, okay, I don't want to open Pandora's box. No, we'll skip that. <laughs> we'll save that for another time. No, because I was just about to, yeah, okay, let's let's discuss this later at one point. But um, I was about to say, like, because when you squash and merge and then you, no one really cares about how many shame commits you had to make for, uh, like, for swiftlinting or whatever. So then... You, you could like uh, just um, make them disappear, basically, but uh, when you don't squash, then <laughs> there are a whole bunch of commits in your history that are just useless, basically, because they're just like, fixing some linting. Uh, let's get back to the to the actual topic. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm using Circuit CI right now at my client, and at my previous project, we used GitHub Actions, but we actually also transferred from, from Circuit CI to GitHub Actions in that project. I think like most people heard of GitHub Actions. But it's relatively new. It's like it's from twenty nineteen. Not yet available in uh, enterprise. I know maybe it is in the latest version, but uh, we don't have access to it yet. So we we use a um, self-hosted GitHub, basically. So yeah. Anyways. <laughs> ah, okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. So as the name <laughs> implies, basically you have to use GitHub, uh, but you can use it um, cloud-based. So as CircleCI. Um, where basically GitHub provides you with the needed hardware to, to run your pipeline, or you can host it yourself, which is, like, depending on <laughs> what you want to do, can be cheaper or not. Uh, usually, most people tend to use just a cloud-based thing. And here I actually know the, the prices, which is quite interesting, because for GitHub Actions, you get uh, 2,000 minutes per month uh, for free, but uh, a macOS minute costs 10 times more than a Linux minute. So you have basically 2,000 minutes, <laughs> Linux minutes. <laughs> and then for macOS, it would be like 200 minutes. 
So keep that in mind if you don't want to spend money on GitHub. And that's just for open um, repositories or is this for private ones as well? Or per account? I, I don't remember what their pricing structure looks like. I, I would have to look that up as well. I don't know. So anyway, for the majority of the project I'm working on, I use GitHub. And I like GitHub Actions because it's fully integrated into GitHub. So you don't have to jump back and forth between GitHub and your CI tool. So you don't have to like, you're on GitHub and then you see, oh yeah, my pipeline failed. And then you click on the details and then you jump to Circle CI and then you see your pipeline and then you have to go back. And so it can be a big, bit tedious or maybe I'm just lazy, but I like the, the integration and that you yeah can just go onto another tab on GitHub and then see your, your uh, pipeline. Other than that, it's uh, very similar to, to CircleCI. So I'm, I'm guessing that most of the tools are quite similar because they basically do the same thing. Um, so you also have a YAML file and you also define workflows and different jobs and different steps and all of those things. So it's in general, it's the same. In terms of naming, a GitHub action is a workflow. And another like cool thing about GitHub actions, um, even though I think there's like a similar thing for other CI tools as well, is that you can write your own GitHub actions, of course, but you can also provide them on the GitHub marketplace. So there are a whole bunch of different actions uh, written by community members. So for example, there's already like a GitHub action that you can use. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel, basically. Uh, one example would be that you <laughs> there's a GitHub action that increments the built-in version number <laughs> for your iOS app if you <laughs> want to create a new release, for example. And those like this is a smaller thing, but they are also like more sophisticated actions for different uh, use cases, um, which I think is kind of nice that you can like reuse the things that uh, some other people wrote. Or there's also an action that um, if you create a GitHub issue, then you create a Jira ticket as well, something like that. So um, a whole bunch of different things and basically there's no limit and what an action can can do, which is quite nice. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to jump uh, or I want to dive into GitHub Actions myself as well. As I mentioned, we don't have them available in our enterprise uh, instance yet. I actually don't use any CI or CD for my personal projects. Maybe I should. I don't know, <laughs> but it might be overkill. But I, I, I really love the way actions um, work. As you said, right? Like you can do so many things and trigger so many like uh, actions from GitHub stuff, like issues. Or you can, I believe, you can move like project boards, right? Like if you if you open a PR and it has like the ticket in the in the commit name or in the title or whatever, you can have like whole workflows around that, or you can you know, do workflows around when something happens to a branch, which of course you can do with these other services as well. But since it's already integrated into GitHub, it's so much easier to set up. I think that's like probably the main selling point around it and the and the community aspect of it, right? The marketplace. I don't think any of the other providers um, have that. Like, sure, there's examples out there or there might be like, you know, somebody who open sourced it, but it's so hard to find. And oftentimes it's just, you know, snippets. It's not like a whole workflow that you that you get that you can just plug in. Yeah, I thought about setting up a pipeline myself just to practice it for one of my projects. And then I thought, I'm not sure if I max out the time for free 
or the three minutes, basically. So, not, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so, <laughs> because otherwise I, I I did something horribly wrong with. <laughs> Because my apps aren't like super big or anything, so they should run in a couple of seconds, probably. Yeah, but it, it would be an interesting, um, interesting exercise, uh, especially also setting up Fastlane for for one of your personal projects. Because I only started, or when I joined projects, I the pipeline is already set up, and I sometimes I have to touch it or change something or add something, but you usually don't have to set it up from the beginning to end all by yourself so that yeah that would be would be kind of nice but you neither use circus ai nor github actions as you already told us um, at your job at my current job we use jenkins but i have used travis before so i guess just to round this out um travis is also a server-based solution um similar to circle ci I've used this a while back for a senior project in, in college. And I think we went... Why? Sorry to interrupt. Why did you use Travis? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think the reason we used Travis over CircleCI was um, that back then Travis was included in the GitHub education package and we were able to use it for free. Whereas Circle, I think, um, uh, did not okay. have that um, for, for students. So they're very similar. You also set up a JAML file. It pretty much did the same thing, and we we used it mainly just for running our unit and UI tests on um, on pull requests. That that was basically all we did, and I think we also hooked into um, code coverage so that we could see if new PRs um, either raise or lower the code coverage, and then we had some thresholds there and stuff like that. We didn't even use SwiftLint back then. We we don't you know it, it was a it was a project that um, we actually never shipped it to the App Store. We did have test flight, but I think. Uh, we did that manually as well but yeah it, it was very small i want to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah two two things in that like i think the the github student package thing is super cool at one point somebody told me about this and you get a whole bunch of things for free so if you're a student and <laughs> or you if you still have a working uh university email address then you can get that package and it's like it also includes like intellij uh, um jetbrains um IDs and all of those those kind of things. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and it might look different today. I I'm not even sure if Travis is part of it anymore, or certainly I may have joined or whatever. Um, but but there's a whole bunch of good stuff in there. Um, so that's like my extent of experience with Travis. And you've already mentioned the pros of like you know having a cloud um, based service because you know we we worked on this project for a whole year, so we we actually had to go through um, Xcode updates, right? We had to. Um, <laughs> manage that, which was super easy because you just set a flag in your JAML file and you say, okay, I want to try out this new beta, which they have available, or you say the latest release version, or if something breaks, you can also go back to a previous version and see if that's still working. That was really nice, but it was also frustrating because when things did break, you would end up going in and uh, I remember late nights where I was just... <laughs> sending updates to to the ci machine and hoping that something worked because and i guess this is like a disclaimer you know neither me or you are uh build engineers <laughs> our day-to-day -day duties do not include um working on on these uh ci uh providers and uh, fix pipelines and, and make workflows all day but we have a little bit of experience so we wanted to share that 
And then so at my current uh, job, we use Jenkins. We actually use self-hosted Jenkins. So the way this looks is we have, you know, some, I think it's Mac minis in an undisclosed location. And we have like a installation of Jenkins on there. I think this is actually, um, I've talked to, to an Apple engineer before. It's pretty much the same thing, what they, what they use as well. And uh, the main reason why big companies do that is because they don't want to ship their whole code base off to an external provider. So they, they're really big on having this on-premise for security aspects. I'm sure Apple does not want to build iOS on a cloud service provider that they don't have <laughs> access to or that they don't, um, you know, uh, manage themselves. Uh, so I think that is the biggest, biggest uh, reason for that. And I think the cost factor probably, especially if you're like in a really big team, is another thing. Because as you mentioned, you you pay per minute for Circle CI or even GitHub Actions and Travis. If you have your own Mac Mini, you pay for the price of that machine plus electricity plus internet costs, but other everything else than that, like you you don't really um, pay per minute or pay per you know workflow or something like that. So that's another thing to to think of. I think even some you know developers have like a Mac Mini. Maybe they have that for their. Uh, home theater server and then they can use Xcode server on it to to do some like test builds or whatever. It's actually pretty pretty well integration. And then with Jenkins, it's not using Jaml. I think it's the only one out of these that has a different syntax. Uh, they use Jenkins files, but it's very similar. Um, they call it pipelines instead of workflows, but as you mentioned, they also have stages and you can, you know, check out and do other stuff. So I wanted to go over a little bit of like what type of pipelines we have and Coincidentally, actually, all of last week I was working on a new pipeline. I can go into that one in a little bit more detail as well. Um, so the ones that we have set up are um, pretty standard. The, the you know pull request ones, unit tests, UI tests with Lint. Our Android team, I think they also have something around uh, app size. And I think they even have metrics around startup time. So they test if a PR uh, increases their app launch time or something like that. I think that's really cool. But then in addition to, to those standard ones, we have ones for uploading and downloading translations with our vendor. We have uh, workflows for a whole bunch of release stuff. And this is the continuous delivery aspect that we'll go into a little bit more detail. And then uh, the one that I was recently working on was um, to generate documentation from our one of our frameworks. Um, we have like a design systems UI component framework um, where we want to generate some documentation and put that on a, um, on a static site. It's basically just markdown files. And that is running through Jenkins now. So it's like checking out the, the main branch and the framework, and then it's checking out the, uh, the repo where the, where the actual website lives. And then it's generating that and pushing it and opening a new PR, which is something that's, I think, really cool as well, because it's not only that, you know, you check out something and then you run a test or run a script on it, but you can... Um, we interact with the GitHub API, and I think Actions make that a little bit easier as well. But you can actually, you know, push things. You can actually open up PRs. You can assign um, reviewers. You, I know that you can even technically uh, have a second bot to approve the PR and then merge it immediately. So you can have like whole uh, pipelines that do a whole bunch of automated work that uh, no engineer ever has to look at. And uh, I think we mentioned this last episode. We also have the um, GraphQL schema that is updated through Jenkins. So that also just runs on a schedule, opens up a PR. We look at it, see if any build failures happen. If not, we merge it and nobody ever has to do that on their own machine. So uh, we have a bunch of them in the in the closet. I think with the, with the cloud providers, another benefit you have is that 
they're always, I think they use Docker, probably, something like that. But you always get a fresh image. Like, the machine will always look the same when you start your job. Uh, of course, if you have your own machines, then you might have something in an environment. And we often had it where, you know, one machine would fail, but the other ones are good. Then you need to take it offline, you need to fix it, and then you can put it back into rotation. Those are kind of like the the things that, that we work with. Um, do you have any questions regarding that? Uh, yeah, I was just like waiting for you to uh, round up your uh, explanation uh, without interrupting you. But I actually have a, a few questions. Do you also do any kind of uh, measuring um, if a PR or if something that was merged to master um, increased the build time or the IPA itself or like um, has in added a super long running test? Um, not really. Not yet. I guess that's the right answer. Um, I think the app size one is really, really interesting. But it's a little bit hard to understand what the actual size is on the app store with app thinning and bitcode and all that stuff that Apple added in recent years. We don't have anything around like looking at the increase of uh, of build time. I think that could be an interesting one as well, but it's a little bit hard to measure, I believe, because um, even though the machines are somewhat created equal, they may have a little bit of a variation there, but I guess you could set a reasonable threshold and then see if, if anything increases. But I don't know, if you add a new uh, CocoaPod, for example, a new library, um, it's pretty uh it's pretty pretty much sure that that is going to increase build time by um by something and then you have to make a trade-off between okay you know uh is that something that's super important for the app and if it is for a feature then then you have to merge it um even if it increases the build time right but i think what you're trying to say is like it would be super interesting to look at these metrics right and i agree yeah because yeah, we we uh, talked about this at the client. Um, our unit tests uh, run quite long, and we're talking like brainstorming um, how to increase uh, or uh, decrease, <laughs> not increasing. That's quite easy uh, to decrease the the test uh, runtime. And uh, there's like a um, library called Swift Info. Mm. In case you haven't heard of that, I haven't. <laughs> it actually provides exactly that those kind of things like the, the size of the IPA or the longest running tests or the, all sorts of different things. And then you can also add whatever you else you want to know. So uh, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in that, those kind of things, uh, I can recommend uh, Swift Info. Uh, we haven't, we tried it, but we haven't like used it uh, on a regular basis for now. It's, it's a very interesting tool at least. And you can also integrate it um, in, in your uh, CI pipeline. And then you can also like have those metrics commented uh, on, on GitHub, for example, all those kind of things, which is quite nice. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, do you have any other <laughs> things to add? Anything we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I wanted to dive in a little bit more into continuous delivery. So you've gave it a little a good overview of Fastlane, and uh, I think that's that's the tool of choice. Uh, big thank you to Felix and Josh who currently work on that, and uh, that really helps with you know building the app and you know pushing it to the app store, and uh, you know even like all the all the metadata and screenshots and all that stuff that is really tedious when you're <laughs> when you're trying to trying to launch an app or make an update to an app on the app store. So a little bit of a background. Early this year, uh, our team, we switched from a three to a two-week uh, release cadence, and that obviously breaks, 
brought some changes with it. So not only is it a faster release, um, but we also have like overlapping releases at this point. So uh, we have a QI team that does a little bit of regression testing, um, which is really nice for us. But that means that basically the, the, the code freeze for a release is a week in advance of it actually being submitted to Apple. And with, with this two-week release cadence, um, we also use the, the seven-day rollout. There, there's actually some overlap, right? So there, uh, we need to maintain like multiple branches, we need to maintain multiple releases, and we had to update our um, pipelines to handle that. Um, so I already mentioned that we have like upload and download, but we also have a job for cutting the release branch. We have a you know job that you can pass the, the branch to, so you can run your UI tests on that release uh, branch, um, like Nightly, for example, and uh, a whole bunch of other things. Um, and continuous delivery is is really interesting, um, especially for us because we we have a few certificates, uh, uh, you know, makes code signing a little bit harder. But Fastlane handles that really really well, and it integrates perfectly with with our Jenkins pipelines. Jenkins basically you can call scripts and you can call you know like executions uh, from, so you can you know execute a bash script, you can execute the Python script, you can execute a Fastlane uh, command or whatever. Um, it's really flexible in, in that regard. And that uh, that was really nice. Like we're, we're still working on um, automating a few tasks that are, you know, manual in the release process. But so far, like we, we have a whole bunch of stuff that, that works really nicely and uh, is now more robust uh, as of that change to the two-week release cadence. Yeah, I think I think that's quite interesting. Like for two reasons, um, can you talk about why you changed from three to two weeks? I can give you my my personal um, <laughs> reasoning behind it. Um, I don't know if I can speak to the um, to the reasoning from management, but my personal um, preference of having two weeks over three weeks is that you can that you can get things quicker to customers, right? So let's say you're working on a feature and you miss this merge window, but you're almost done and it just need a few days longer. Now you're getting this to customers a week earlier. Same goes with bug fixes, right? Like once you discover a bug fix, it might take like a week or two to fix it, um, depending on how severe or you know how complicated the bug is. And then you can get those quicker to customers. So the the more often you release, the the more up-to-date your users will be because um, I'm sure now that you've worked with bigger clients, it's not so uncommon that the version that you're using internally is like way ahead of the one that is on the App Store. That's the second thing I wanted to ask because the app I'm working on now is quite big. It's not as big as, as uh, Twitch, right? But um, it has user numbers in the millions, so it's it's not uh, super small. But we don't have a QA team or <laughs> the, the process itself is not like that uh, constrained. So if we we have our sprints and then we finish a bunch of tickets and then we make a release. So, But it's not like that we have a merge window or something. We are more in control of the whole thing. And if we wait on something or something happens or we, have, we find a bug and we have to fix that quite quickly and then release that we can just like do that yeah so that's quite interesting i mean i understand why because of the size uh, <laughs> of of the app i mean that's that's not to say that we don't do hot fixes either right like so if, if there's a really bad bug and th i mean that's why we do the seven day rollout right is so that we can pause and 
fix something if anything goes wrong. And that's that's what I was um, hinting at with the with the overlapping releases, right? That we need to maintain multiple branches in in that regard. Yeah, the the QA regression testing. I think that's the main reason why we're offset like that, right? And it is quite nice as a as an engineer because um, you can have more confidence in what you're shipping, right? But it, it also slows you down. So, you know, in, in your case, you know, your your merch window is, I don't know, let's say it's Wednesday, right? And then probably you can submit to Apple like within the next few days and get it out to the store. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So is it like, is that a regression testing done manually or do you automate it? Uh, no, so we, we, have a, we have a bunch of tests that are automated, like UI tests and unit tests. And they do cover a bunch of these regression test cases as well. But no, this is, this is actual humans interacting with multiple phones because I believe our UI tests, at least currently, they only run on one device and one version. So our QA team actually has like multiple iOS versions that they test on and they have multiple devices like iPads and iPhones and different sizes and stuff like that um, in order to like catch bugs. And there's there's definitely things, and you probably know this as well, with, with automated tests, uh, you know, from time to time you mock things. Um, but here it's actually like a human saying like, okay, they, they catch things um, that a, an automated test would never do, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But like, f from an engineering point of view, it always seems kind of weird to to, have, like, to not invest the time and money to automate those kind of things because you could think that this is actually cheaper than having humans test that and like saying like humans like sounds like a little bit like in the lab, but <laughs> have like real users <laughs> use the app. But um, yeah, I think like, as you said, like there's like some things that you, I mean, of course you could have a test for everything, but that would be super hard to find or to write a test for every single thing, every single interaction that someone can do uh, on your app so um it's actually it makes sense to have like actually like a team to to test that with multiple devices and multiple ios versions yep. okay but i was wondering because i talked to um some colleagues about this because twitch is like on android and ios like you have an android app you have an ios app so do they have the same feature set yeah um mostly basically. So we, we do have certain things that are platform specific when it comes to like the look and feel of the app. But for, for feature development, um, we, you know, always, we have the same release schedule first and foremost. Um, so when we release stuff, we release it at the same time. And then um, when we do feature development, we do it in both the iOS and in the Android team. That is not to say that, you know, sometimes one team is finished you know, or, or takes longer than the other one, takes longer than estimated. Um, we, we do have a little bit of a different tech stack. So, you know, the implementation varies widely between the two platforms, um, but at least they're they're being worked on at the same time. So there can be an offset of like, I don't know, two weeks or something like that, but they're, they're pretty much like the feature parity is there. If we look at web compared to mobile, though, that's a whole nother It's so another conversation. Um, there's definitely like a lot of discrepancy between the, the mobile app and what web offers. So like the, the apps being further advanced than web or? <laughs> the other way around. Uh, that would be nice. No, the web has a lot, like most of our users are on, on the web platforms and uh, 
there's a whole bunch of more features. So we often in the mobile teams have to do uh, parity work where we basically implement something that is already on web, um, which also makes it easier for us because we can look at what, you know, they oftentimes run into issues that then we don't have to deal with because they're already fixed by then. Yeah, yeah that's, but it's quite cool that you um, manage to keep both platforms on the same level, more or less. I mean, of course, there's always um, on one platform, it's it's developed a little bit faster than on the other platform, but it's if it's more or less the, the same, then you you quite quite good because there are like some projects where that is definitely not the case where one platform is way further ahead than the other platform apparently some some teams uh, struggle with that but as i heard from you now you you split the team or the apps team i'm not sure how you call it between uh, iOS and Android. Yeah, exactly. So we have a mobile team that is split between Android and iOS. And then for our feature teams, we have verticals um, so that the engineers can can work side by side and they have the same manager and they have the same designers and they have the same PMs and stuff like that. So um, even though there's an Android engineer and there's an iOS engineer, they are not working in isolation. Um, they're very much uh, integrated. Like we, we have a lot of a lot of overlap, a lot of meetings together and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, this is super cool. But do you also have like some um, team members that switching back and forth uh, the two platforms? Pretty much everybody is staying on their home turf. We have a few people that uh, you know peek over, <laughs> peek over a little bit and uh, try to at least understand what what the other platform is doing. But oftentimes they're not they're not actually like contributing features or something like that. We do, however, have a um, contributors program for, for web developers. So we have a whole onboarding process in our mobile teams where we take on external contributors um, that go through like a two-week boot camp almost or, you know, through classes and self-guided learnings from our teams. And they then, you know, take on tickets and do feature work. Yeah, this is uh, super cool. But have you, Pete? I personally have not. Um, I think... Kotlin is interesting. I think it's very similar to Swift. I also am interested in like what our Android team is doing, but I don't think I will ever be an, an Android engineer. Um, that's I, I my passion for Apple is too big <laughs> that I would that I would uh, <laughs> you know feel comfortable uh, developing for for Android. Uh, but I, I think it's it's super valuable to look at it right because I think their tooling is interesting. I think um, you know using a different IDE seeing what's out there. And I really wish that Apple was doing this as well because then they could say like, oh, maybe we should split up Xcode and not ship like 12 gigabytes every time we have an update, uh, stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah, this is true. Like the, the IDE is <laughs> a whole other discussion as <laughs> squashing and merging. At the client um, I'm working at now, we are actually uh, able to, to jump back and forth the two platforms. And it is quite fun. I have to. I have to say, it's um, Kotlin is is a fun language to to work with. I mean, everything is fun in Kotlin because that's what they call their functions. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> nice. It's actually quite uh, cool because, um, and I also like to do this for like web development, for example, because if you if you um, look at a new language or a new platform. There, there are always things that are done differently, but always also things that are done very similar. And usually if you look at the same thing on a different platform, you kind of understand why it's done um, 
on iOS or in Swift or UIKit that way, which also helps to uh, improve your iOS uh, development skills. Um, so I, I recommend that to everybody to <laughs> look at the different side sometimes. Funny enough, uh, there's this new uh, web app from Samsung where you can like turn your iPhone into into an Android device and like play around with it a little bit. I did it the other day, and it just feels so foreign to me. Like it, it's really not that like I I you know it would be a betrayal to Apple or anything like that. Uh, I I don't think that you know Apple uh, should be on this pedestal and that they're always in the right and they can do no wrong. But uh, yeah, I I don't feel at home on Android devices. Maybe that's like the right way to put it. So developing on something that you don't uh, understand hundred percent or that you don't like know the interactions or know the paradigms, I think is a little bit awkward. Like I'm a I'm a very UI focused person, so I, I have to understand what the <laughs> what the system UI is first before I can develop for it. I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, another like another interesting aspect of Kotlin is um, Kotlin multi-platform actually, uh, because you can actually uh, work uh, develop in Kotlin for both platforms. And uh, since I had like some kind of first steps in Kotlin, um, I'm I'm planning on on uh, creating some kind of app just to test uh, Kotlin multi-platform. For sure, yeah, I think Kotlin multi-platform is super interesting. Um, we currently have a shared C++ library between the Android and iOS app, and we're slowly migrating off of it. And I think Kotlin multi-platform is probably what uh, what makes sense for us to write code once. This is like business logic and you know networking code and stuff like that um, that we can then use in both platforms. Yeah, that's something that's super exciting. Yeah, that was it for this episode. Uh, I hope uh, you learned something today, and. Uh, as always, it was a pleasure talking to you, Tim. Pleasure's all mine. I hope everybody learned something today. And as always, we uh, put some helpful links in the show notes. And if you're further interested in the topic, then you can check those out and learn a bit more. And um, without further ado, I hope you have a great Saturday. Thanks, you too. I will see you uh, next month. Yep, see you guys. Bye.